I'm very upset right now, nonprofits. I, I'm so sorry. I know we were technically gone for a week. I know that. And I know that I should be rested up and high energy, but I was nasally attacked right before we went live. My uh, olfactory sense was just assaulted in the most horrific of ways. I'm not going to put anyone on blast. I'm not going to do that live on this podcast. I'll wait till he leaves the room, but <laughs> I, I was attacked. Hi, Steven. Hey, Frankie. <laughs> Frankie was Frankie was nasally assaulted right before the show. Um, she thought that somebody had let her dog, or let dog, a, like a dog. You don't even dog. you don't even have a dog. No, I don't um, have a dog. Hit. Um. That being said, this is episode fourteen, and we're off to a killer start. Oh hi, episode fourteen. I'm very angry. I'm very disgruntled. If I could be gruntled, I would be, but I'm very disgruntled. What would uh? What's regular gruntled? You know what? It's not this. It's the opposite of this. Gruntled sounds like the name of like a troll that would sit under a bridge. Um, I feel like Gruntled would be cool though. He'd have some like badass boots. He'd listen to like heavy metal and hardcore rap and have gold in his pocket, just lined with gold. Yep. So um, it's been it's been a rough week for for both of us. Do we do we go into that a little bit? Of course, we can't just not like. Hey, we're gonna play a tape this next week. You guys don't, you won't notice that we're not live. It'll be fine. And we won't address it when we come back. Like that sounds. So, so what have you been getting into Frankie? Nothing. I've been getting into the hospital. That's all I got into. Yeah. And so how are we, how are we feeling now? I know that you had a little bit of surgery, a little bit of stay in the hospital. No surgery. Okay. Dodge that bullet. Thankfully. I am counting them blessings. Yeah, because they were go- they wanted to do surgery, and I had a tear in my intestines. Oh shoot! Yeah, what, um, it was and, bad. And so, what is the remedy? Just a little bit of rest. A lot of rest. No food or anything by mouth. IV fluids, um, pain meds, lots of pain meds, and antibiotics to like heal the infection and close the tear. So, yeah, it was a nightmare hellscape. Um, the worst pain I've ever been in, including labor. And yes, I've had a kid, so suck it. Um, I don't think anybody was, was contesting that you have had a kid. Look, I, I told, I'm very gruntled. Okay. I, I mean, disgruntled. Disgruntled. No, yeah, gruntled would gruntled. be much more, much more, uh, jubilant. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm trying to get these flat dulcet tones out of my, out of my voice, but um, this is just where we are. But yeah, it was, it was awful. The hospital stay was terrible. Um, and I was in a lot of pain. And I you know, I don't know if anyone has been, I'm sure someone watching has been in the hospital for a long stay and they're giving you everything intravenous, right? So my pain meds were going like straight. So I was basically like a hypodermic drug user for a week. Um, <laughs> like the best shit you could get. And then they send you sent me home and they're like, okay, go home. See ya. You're better. Take the rest of those pills. You know what I mean? And so then I'm like at home that first day that I came home, like having the sweats and, you know, like night terrors and my body seizing up. So, and then I'm realizing like, oh, I'm detoxing from opioids right now. Yeah. You know, it was horrific. And I was like calling my husband, like, I suck your dick. Like it was really, it was, it was bad. It's wild that they don't give you any sort of like coaching on that part of it. Cause that's what I was getting at. They should give like, they should seriously, because it's funny. So this happened four years ago and I was actually in the hospital that time. I was in the hospital for eight days. It was a little worse than this time. This time I was only in for four days. I mean, five days. 
Um, but yeah, last that last time I was I was in there for eight days, and they they when they sent me home, they literally gave me like fifty more Dilaudid. You know, what I mean, a prescription for like fifty, like some Dilaudid. to another opioid. Yeah, some like insane amount though, like some really unnecessary amount. You know what I mean? And I came home and I didn't know anything about detoxing from opioids or heroin. Like I knew nothing about that. And I, w- I just was really sick, like really sick. Because when I came home, I told my husband, just fill my antibiotics. Don't fill the pain meds. Like I don't want, I I'm, I'm, don't want any more pain meds. You know what I mean? Like I just want to be done with that. And so we didn't fill it. We never even filled the script, right? And so I'm at home and I'm like drenched in sweat. And my, my, I feel like I'm literally coming out of my own skin. Like it was horrific. And then I call my doctor and I'm like, hey, you know, something's really wrong. I don't know what, what it is, but and I'm describing all my symptoms. He doesn't tell me what's going on. He's just like, oh, he's like, did you fill that prescription for that I gave you for Dilaudid? And I was like, no, I haven't filled it. He's like, oh, you just need to fill that and just take them, you know, as it is, you know, as it reads on the bottle. Can you imagine if I did that? Can you imagine what my what my life would be right now if I just decided, like, if not knowing? I literally didn't know. And so to me, that sounded wrong. Like, I don't think I should keep taking these pain meds. So I Googled um, detoxing from pain meds or something like that and found, you know, this track back to, like, you know, coming off of trying to get clean from, like, heroin and opioids. It's literally the same thing. You go through the same, like, physical experience and so I just went through that at that time I went through it for probably like a little over a week and a half and and Charles was just like taking care of me every day like just taking care of me I wouldn't let my daughter see me because that's just how messed up I was yeah but in between that four years ago happening and this recent visit I I saw a documentary about these weed doctors who treat heroin addicts recovering heroin addicts with weed weed therapy so when they're when they're coming down and trying to get the heroin or whatever opioid out of their system they treat them with a really highly concentrated um indica Mm -hmm. and that like interacts with all of those like literally it feels like your skin is on fire it's horrific and it 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 counteracts all of that um you know some of the symptoms you still have but it if it decreases it I can't even like I could function so anyway so that's I started detoxing right and I remember I have these 50 milligram weed pills and I'm like I feel like I should take one I think that that's the answer and I'm like you know in my brain like a beautiful mind all of these lines are pointing everywhere are you you able to keep down food at this point no absolutely not no I can't keep down I can't keep down food I can barely keep down water um, and so I take this weed pill and that was the, that was it. That was the answer. And I still feel like, huh? Can I say, so one thing at, at the front end, because we, we're going to continue talking about this, but, uh, we do have Headstrong on today and, uh, Headstrong's an incredible organization that we've been working with that they, um, they work with cancer patients, but that are, involved with uh different different college sports and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so to we'll we'll continue to get into them and the work that they're doing but i'm just to slightly keep uh a parallel with what we're talking about it is this thing of um especially when going through a chemo or going through any sort of um rehabil- rehabilitation of that sort um the stay in the hospital is is just fucking horrible. And mm-hmm. we will get back to Headstrong, but one of the things that they are doing is um, coaching through that process and making it more bearable. Um, but let's let's go back. Let's go back to what you're talking about. No, but I mean, I think that that's, that's my whole point and even bringing it up. And this isn't the only conversation I want to have about it. Like I want to talk about this like at nauseam with people that know more about it than I do but just my personal experience the answer both time from both doctors was take the pills just without saying hey here's what's happening to your body right now while you were in the hospital with us you basically become addicted to opioids because you needed pain meds do you get what I'm saying I can understand that okay I get that knowing we know that that's going to happen when you go home before you go home as a matter of fact we're going to get you off of that and start you know do you get what I'm saying like 
started introducing some other type of therapy and other type of options so that you can go home healthy and able to cope. Because had I not even just been someone strong enough of mine, because this time I filled the prescription. And in my mind, I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Every night, I'll just take one before I go to bed. And that way, you know, I'll just be getting myself off a little bit at a time. And I thought about it. I was like, hell no. I don't want any of it. I wanted to start leaving my system tonight. Like I want that dose I got in the hospital to be the last one. And if Headstrong is working, you know, on helping people with that transition, that's really, really, really huge. Because like I said, my experience was horrific. Yeah. Well, even uh, coaching Charles through how to help you, right? Because I mean, from, from, from your standpoint, from your standpoint, obviously horrific, but also like to watch somebody that you love dealing with it and have no idea how Mm -hmm. to help in any way, shape or form is, is a very hopeless feeling as well. Yeah. He, we were talking, he and I were talking about that. He was just like, you know, a few days after I came home, he was like, I was really scared for those first couple of days. He's like, you were not at all. Cause I wasn't myself. And I didn't know. I knew that the wheat, that the marijuana, that the THC, I knew that that would calm me down enough because it's a pure indica. I knew it would calm me down enough that the shakes and the chills and all of those things I was going through would be manageable. You get what I'm saying? Not that that it would be gone and not that I'd be, you know, back to 100%. I just knew that I would not, I I mean, not to go too deep, but I literally like the thought of just jumping out of my window crossed my mind. And not because I'm suicidal, but because it was that, the pain was that intense. You know what I mean? And like the need, it was just, it was awful. Yeah, my grandfather, he had stomach cancer. And when he was passing away, they just kept telling him to slap fentanyl patches on. Yeah. So like, and, and like literally giving, and the thing is, is like my grandma's, a, it, she just passed away, but she, th- she's very traditional that the doctor knows best. Knows best and, yeah. And so like she would just, he would just keep telling her to slap more fentanyl patches on. And she's just like, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you are somebody that is taking the doctor's word for, for gospel, you know, like you'll just keep doing yeah. it. And it's like them simultaneously wondering why we got an opioid issue. Why we have an, the doc, oh my, don't, do not, do not get me started right here. Seriously, do not get me. Literally my, just my experience, just the one little tiny weensy beansy baby experience I had I cannot imagine what someone with chronic pain is going through, sure. what someone going through chemo or, or, you know, an advanced stages of cancer is going, I, my brain can't process that because that's, that's, that's potentially weeks, plural, months, years of being on the cycle of pain medication. You don't get off of that roller coaster. You can't just jump off of it. You cannot, like you are physically, anyway. My yeah, my grandfather, my favorite person in the planet, he passed away when I was eight from pancreatic cancer. So sure. fuck cancer. You know what I mean? Like I, I'll ne- that was the war. Like that was literally the first big stamp in my brain of life. Life's not fair, and here's why: the person you love the most in the whole entire world will never see you grow up. Sure. Have a great day. Hey, yeah. Well, it's also at different ages of life. It's like weirder to deal with because like so my mom had lymphoma when I was 13 14 so she I you know I'm very lucky that she beat it but it was this thing of like simultaneously while you're learning about girls you're learning about like death, yeah death right and that that's a real heavy lesson to learn so I actually I just had uh this is this is a sad episode so far, but I, I had a friend die from brain cancer yesterday. I know. Um, and, but she, I mean, on the light note, she, her name is Christina Beals, and she was definitely a person that was a huge reminder to just like enjoy every minute that you got. Mm-hmm. You know, she was definitely a person that like, went out of her way to always just say something very nice about like, Hey, we had this interaction and this was really special to me because of this, this, and this. Ah. 
And so those people are so much better than us. Oh. <laughs> um, and and so yeah, I mean it is a uh a lot of it is sad topics, but it is a um reality uh, of life. It is reality of life, but there is a way to um see oh. some of the beauty in le- in life because of it. Of course. Yeah. You can't see the good without the bad. You know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't, you have to have contrast and sometimes that contrast is stark, you know? Um, but yeah, what it's so on, on a happier note, what are you, you rocking some auditions right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm also in a funk because of that. I'm not getting, I'm not, I'm not being selected. Sure. Which feels, um, it just, you know, it just feels, it feels shitty. Yeah, we, um, but on the, on the uh, fundraising side, right, we're doing, we're actually doing a project with Headstrong on March 19th with, we are. Uh, yeah, where Frankie will be hosting. We've got, uh, we can talk about it in a second, but it's like 780 or so uh, women's lacrosse teams that'll be on the show. So talking, talking thousands of people raising money for Headstrong. Um, it'll be fun. It'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. Well, okay. I know I'm very muted. Okay, Steven. I, I can, so everyone watching, you're probably like, oh my God, what's wrong with Frank? Look, nothing's wrong. Okay. I promise. Frankie just had a rough week. Maybe by the end of the show, I'll be a little more, you know, my normal Frankie-ish, Frenchiest self. But if not, I promise she'll be back full force next Tuesday. It's just right now. But know that inside my heart, though, oh, there is a parade going through town square for each and every one of you is happening inside my heart. Wait, is that a good thing? Do you want Why a parade? You shut the hell up, Steven. You're real. As I'm saying, I'm like, am I dying of decongestive heart? Yeah, you're just like, <laughs> there's a bunch of little men stomping on my heart in line. <laughs> right now for each and every one of you. You know what they say about finger painting? Okay, I'm not gonna, but... Um... <laughs> no, um <laughs> But it is one of the things that is it is uh, kind of cool about doing a weekly show. You get little time stamps into our lives, what we're dealing with. And, yeah. and you know, the main thing that we are always trying to do with the Nonprofits podcast is is amplify the voices of some of the partner nonprofits that we're working with. You know, we've had some really cool organizations in and we have doing and the stuff that Headstrong is doing. Um, it is. One of the things that's very cool about what they do is marketing itself, outside of the good works that they're doing, marketing itself in the nonprofit space and so is is almost a bad word. It's this weird thing I that we. Know. What's that? Nothing. Forget it. It was a <laughs> moment. <laughs> Just a little parade of people, um, <laughs> and it is a cool thing that they've. I mean. They've been smashing on the virtual fundraising space. They've been doing all sorts of stuff of where a lot of nonprofits, their issue is that their donor class is super old and they're not able to attract younger uh, contributors and younger donors. Um, They've really been able to knock that out of the park as well. So we'll be talking with them a little bit about that, talking with Pat a little bit about that. Might as well just bring- Yeah, why don't we bring him on? He can talk for himself. So he can talk on his own. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's watch, let's all be very quiet and watch Stephen ruin this gentleman's name. <laughs> Take it away, Stephen. It's well, strong. Pat, can you say your name? Pat, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm the worst. Fine. I'm so sorry. Stephen no, is so Caucasian. I'm, I apologize. I'm no, I'm no stranger to having my name butchered, but uh, for the sake of the audience, Pat, Kalalori. I told you like eight times. Kalalori. Come on, Steven. Okay. So, Pat, right off the top, um, what is it that Headstrong does in the elevator pitch version? And then what is it that Headstrong's been doing over the last year? And and how has it been affected by the last year of fun and excitement that we've been having? Hmm. So, over the past 14 years, we've had the privilege of serving the emotional 
financial, logistical, and residential needs of those navigating the storm of cancer. Our specialization as an organization is providing services that are needed most when they are needed most. The arenas that we are in are really, you know, managing matters of affordability and accessibility and where those roads intersect is where you find us. Our purpose is really to empower families in a great time of despair and vulnerability in their lives. Um, our, our mission as an organization is to improve lives affected by cancer. The goal of our organization is to really give families the guidance, the resources, and the confidence necessary to go the distance against this disease, giving them the ability to explore every option without the obstacles that oftentimes stand in the way. We really exist as an organization to enable families to live with absolutely no regrets. Um, since our inception, we've had the privilege of serving more than 19,000 families. Oh, wow. Um, and what's amazing is that this is an organization that uh, is rooted in the depths of um, despair and tragedy. Um, my younger brother, Nicholas, um, was a student athlete at Hofstra University in Long Island, um, where he was a member of the men's lacrosse team. And uh, Sadly, just two weeks into his sophomore year uh, at school, um, he was terminally diagnosed with a very aggressive form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was uh, forced to withdraw from school to pursue treatment locally in Philadelphia, where we're from, because we had access to world-class physicians and specializing in his classification of disease. And uh, from that point on, um, it was really a hellish battle that involved our whole family. Um, what we bear witness to was the lack of available resources for families firsthand. And so in many respects, uh, this service mission was carved through our own trials and tribulations. And, you know, what bothered my brother was not so much having this disease, but more importantly, what it was doing to our family and the decisions that we had to make, which influenced, you know, our ability to pursue treatment when he was going through this battle. Uh, he fought for 14 months. Uh, doctors actually thought and gave him about a three-month prognosis at the time of diagnosis and staging. And so he definitely proved a lot of people wrong. Uh, but we made a commitment to Nick that we would go the distance, uh, that we would always assure him that he was never alone, and that we would do whatever it took um, to, go, to really go the distance against the disease. And and so kind of understanding the complexity of family dynamics and family systems uh, alongside of the sheer affordability issue as to, you know, how things um, are greatly and severely influenced and impact when folks that are navigating a cancer fight don't necessarily have uh, the resources at their fingertips, the disposable income to manage the unplanned for um, expenses, uh, as well as the overwhelming medical debt. And what we see is we see families that sink uh, into great financial despair. And I'll be completely transparent. We were one of them. You know, my brother Nicholas lost his health insurance and missed his cancer fight, you know. And so we know what it's like to have to make those really difficult decisions. And so, you know, serving as a coach, a mentor, a guide, uh, providing a playbook for families to uh, to navigate the most difficult decisions of their life with clarity and most importantly, confidence. But, you know, from the moment of a diagnosis to hopeful remission, you know, our commitment is to serving families. We serve all cancers and all cases, pediatric through geriatric. And okay. so, you know, there, there are some verticals of our organization, as I had mentioned, uh, emotional coaching and obviously providing that guidance and mentorship. There's that financial aid that is so critically needed, especially when families are just walloped. Maybe they're not able to work at the time of a diagnosis or they don't have a job at the time of a diagnosis, or maybe they have limited health care or even no health care. Um, you know, all those things all impact. And it's just a, a domino effect for a lot of folks. And then, you know, when you, when you, you pair into consideration the economic ripple, uh, which is completely out of people's control. At the end of the day, we try to be that constant for families uh, that they can turn to 
and that we can provide tangible solutions to oftentimes overshadowed problems. Can I ask, so does that, I guess uh, two questions on, on what you said. So one is that on the family support side of things, does that come in the form of, of, count, of counseling for the individual families? And then um, one of the things that I, I, one of the things that's always just blows me away is insurance and its ability to dissipate as soon as you need it. Um, so I guess two, two things is what does that sort of counseling look like mm -hmm, on sure. the family side? And then what was the justification of the insurance company for, does it, does it become a pre-existing condition at a certain point? Yeah. So in the situation with Nicholas, healthcare was structured very differently. I mean, he was 19 years old and under our parents' policy, he was a dependent as long as he was a full-time student. Given the severity of his disease at the time, even with a pre-existing condition, by him not being in school, essentially he lost his health insurance. So what was interesting was that in addition to having uh, navigate terminal cancer uh, and literally getting a firsthand crash course on the disease, my folks and our family more or less was forced to learn how to be street smart, so to speak, uh, to afford Nicholas's care. Um, it was something that we saw walloping families just, you know, and this has to do with the specialized uh, direction of a lot of treatments. Um, a lot of times, specialty clinicians aren't necessarily in network. You don't realize this until you're amidst things. Mm. Um, and, and that's where a lot of these expenses start to compile an amount. Because the other thing, which is quite tragic, is that when someone's sick, whether you're caring for a child that's ill, you yourself are sick, or you're, you're a caregiver to someone that you love, um, you know, maybe there's some major adjustments that have to take place given your employment status. Um, maybe people don't have a cooperative employer. It's sad to say, but it oftentimes happens. Or maybe you're in a job where your productivity um, is predicated on your salary. Sure. And so, you know, you're not necessarily making money for this, for, for this company, and therefore you're not able to record an income as a result. Uh, and just being sick and just navigating that. Um, I mean, it's one of those things where I don't think a lot of people realize it until they're in that situation, but like, we're talking years. Uh, Frankie, you mentioned um, earlier in the podcast how... Um, challenging it may be for someone to get off um, a prescription medication right. that's been on for years. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you're also navigating long-term expenses that you never foresaw happening, and you're doing it without the income that you're normally used to producing. Right. If you're blessed enough to come from a dual-income household in a supportive family circumstance, um, you know, oftentimes one of the partners or spouses or parents takes the responsibility of being a caregiver while the other continues to work. Um, we see that all too often. So in addition, you're now navigating your everyday expenses with 50% less income, let alone the medical expenses. And so the other question you had in addition to that was, um, what was it again, Stephen? I'm sorry. What, what is the, like the counseling process look sure. like? Like, is it you know, pretty regimented or do you connect them with counselors that, yeah, how does that look? So the majority of the members of our staff have actually personally lived having cancer. Mm. And in addition to that, we've constructed this wonderful network of advocates uh, that serve in the capacity of really being, you know, a, a true friend. Uh, a lot of times, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example of a very real situation that's happening right now. Just last week, uh, a family from Albany, New York, learned that their 15-year-old daughter was diagnosed with uh, Ewing sarcoma, a form of bone cancer. Um, this is a disease, despite its rarity, um, is oftentimes contained to like the femur bone. It's bo bone cancer, more or less. Uh, she found out that her disease is in her humerus, in her arm. It's a very rare diagnosis. Uh, my point being is that we now have uh, a family in peril 
the rug has just been ripped out from under them. They've been blindsided by a diagnosis. And as a result, the decisions that they're making uh, are, are, you know, they're not rationally thinking. They're driven by anxiety and fear. They don't necessarily understand the road um, or the path before them. They don't know where to turn. They don't know who to trust. All of a sudden, they're just, all of their vulnerabilities are exposed because they're scared. And so, you know, the interface that we provide is designed to be a real face that understands what it's like to go through these challenges, mm-hmm. to be empathetic, to be supportive, um, to, to be um, encouraging, uh, to provide options, to talk them through things like maybe it's how to talk to your child or, mm-hmm. you know, what if your child isn't necessarily comfortable in talking with you? Um, those type of challenges. So again, the level of counseling that we provide is, is really, um, it's authentic, if that makes sense. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Can you, can you tell us, Pat, how has your organization had to pivot over the last 12 months? Sure. Um, you know, one of the more interesting things is, uh, Stephen, you had mentioned, we interface with about 840 collegiate uh, athletic programs throughout the country. And while we have several different revenue streams, um, you know, the sector of college athletics and colleges and universities certainly make up a a solid portion of our fundraising base. Um, When our organization was dealt the challenge of navigating the pandemic, um, naturally, and I really, I take a lot of pride in, 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 in our ability to be creative, be flexible, and to really, you know, over the years, as you had mentioned previously, um, we've constructed an organization that really identifies with, uh, with people. And a lot of that comes from, you know, our desire to create an organization that people want to be part of, as opposed to feeling that they have to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And we try to do that by having maximized impact at its most direct route. And, and as a result, you know, even having dialogue today, you know, fostering relationships with people is what it's all about. And so, you know, we really leaned on our creative juices, you know, we're very accommodating as it pertains to being open-minded and trying to approach things by having real dialogue internally about, hey, what can we do in this space? Um, You know, I'll give you a prime example. We were very early to pivot virtual with events. I mean, as early as late, I should say early March of last year, so around this time last year, we were already underway with planning virtual events before they became a thing. Sure. Um, and you know, we were able to realize that accessibility to artists and talent and you know and, and people that of influence were accessible and also desiring to be part of things to help their brand and to help themselves. Um, and, and, and especially from a marketing standpoint. And so we were able to rally that. We did a lot of virtual concerts. We, you know, engaged great artists, whether it was, you know, things like National Student Athlete Day on April 6th or May 15th, International Day of Families. We gradually pivoted and dissected certain segments of our expansive audience, um, We've been able to organically grow one of the largest active social communities amongst cancer orgs in the, in the country. Um, and we have a, an, a constituent base of more than 740,000 people that, you know, play a hand. And so it was really kind of dissecting that audience and understanding, like, what can they do in this space? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... You know, what was interesting, and it was one of the more, I'll be, you know, I'll be totally transparent. I mean, it was challenging because what happened with us with this healthcare crisis was twofold. Um, You know, the demand for our support for people navigating pre-existing health crises amongst a global pandemic went through the roof. And the ways in which on the surface we said fund those services was greatly and severely impacted. Mm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, again, sometimes the best 
you know, and I hear it a lot of times, it's like, you know, the formula for success for many people is when there's no backup plan. That's exactly what we did. We rose to the occasion. We continue to do so. Um, and it's really come on the heels of a lot of hard work, a desire to, you know, to find ways to collaborate and create new things. And after all, thinking like that's exactly how we even came into contact. You know, sure. thinking traditionally isn't necessarily going to move the needle in this time. You know, thinking outside of the box, being creative, introducing new ways to approach it. I guess for me and for us as an organization, being athletes uh, at our heart, you know, you have to learn how to, um, to adapt to circumstances. And I think this circumstance has certainly brought about a great deal of perspective. Um, you know, I'll be the first to say that in this climate with COVID, it's been like tasking our patient population with climbing up 100 flights of steps and then COVID throwing an 80-pound bag of cement on their back. Oof. So the challenges that folks are navigating now are even more straining than they had dealt with previously. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it's put a lot of pressure on us to be able to stand tall and to deliver on our service mission. Um, these are patients that are navigating new expenses like residential chemotherapy and reg residential care to keep them out of the hospital where they're more immunosuppressed and likely to contract COVID. We're talking, mm -hmm. about, we're talking about major delays in treatment. And now, for instance, like in addition to possibly, you know, maybe you're preparing for a six-week inpatient bone marrow transplant. Um, as opposed to having your family by your side, you're now forced to undergo that procedure alone. You're in isolation. And in addition to that, you're also being told that due to the delays and the disruptions in treatment, because let's face it, in order to accommodate this new influx of patients, you have to almost, in a sense, rob Peter to pay Paul. There's only so many beds, so many rooms, so many first-line health care workers, nurses, physicians, et cetera. There's been a lot of medical reorgs, a lot of staff re rerouted. Um, and as a result, you have these now major delays in treatment. So we see patients that, you know, maybe they come to Philadelphia where we're based and they're, they're supposed to be here for six weeks. Well, they're now here for 12 weeks and they're put on bridge chemotherapy to keep their cancer at bay oh, so, that they wow. can, so that they can get to their treatment eventually. Um, I heard you mention, Pat, that you guys have a demographic that is outside of the collegiate athlete. How do you get in contact with those, um, those clients? How would someone kind of outside of that know about you guys how would they get in touch if they needed help? And, and do you offer the same services or are those services limited for people outside of that scope? Oh, 100%, Frankie. Um, we serve the general population. We're not specific to serving just athletes or just college students. As I had mentioned, we are a, uh, I refer to us as a spectrum organization in that, you know, we're all cancers and all cases as far as geriatric through pediatric and vice versa. I think the category you can lump us into is direct family services. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the most important things in our service mission that I did not mention previously is in addition to providing these services, we also own and operate a guest family lodge called Nick's house. And oh, wow. Nick's house was conceptualized because when my brother was going through treatment, we had actually met a family living out of the parking garage of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And, and unfortunately, um, that really enabled us to gain some great insight into the financial devastation of sudden medical debt. And with sudden medical debt being the leading cause of home foreclosure in our country, we needed to take a very serious look at that. And then what had happened was when treatment did not work for my brother, we were relocated to Washington, D.C. to pursue treat a clinical trial at the National Institute of Health. And we understood firsthand, we had gone through it. We saw firsthand the lack of available resources. And so we made a commitment that if we could ever provide a unique service and understanding the geographic hub uh, that, that Philadelphia was for, for cancer care, 
that we would offer this service. And um, so for the past decade, uh, we have operated Nick's House. Uh, Nick's House is a um, seven family guest lodge um, that provides more than 2,500 nights of complimentary housing and accommodations each year to families that are displaced to our region uh, in the pursuit of advanced care, clinical trials and transplants. And so even within this pandemic, you know, we have operated at 100% occupancy because these are families that are in a position of this being the Hail Mary. Right. This is the, this is the, uh, the thing that potentially may save their life. And they don't have an option. Their alternative is hospice care and funeral arrangements. Yeah. Right. And so it's a very, um, difficult decision to make for lots of families because it oftentimes accompanies or happens at the end of one's cancer fight. Mm -hmm. And so what we realized was that oftentimes folks will gamble with convenience over best possible care. Right. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the idea of a relocation to another part of the country in pursuit of care isn't necessarily feasible for many folks Mm -hmm. unless they're in a a predicament of not having options. And many a times someone may be diagnosed with a case. Maybe there's not a clinician that specializes or has seen this disease in their area, Mm -hmm. or maybe they're in a predicament where they've undergone treatment in that area and have exhausted that resource. And the thing that they need to keep them alive or at least keep them moving forward through life is 1500 miles away. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine, you know, the anxiety and the fear that accompanies a relocation when you're not well in health. Can I, can I ask? So one of the things that we had uh, touched on before, but One of the drivers that is something that I know is underlying for me, right? I came from a place where people die a lot. You know, I've got 23 friends that have died through different uh, different ways from um, from a city where- Not that- a contest, Stephen. It's okay, not- Okay, but I'm just not saying. But um, it is a driver of mine, right? Knowing that I made it out and that I should be- capitalizing on that opportunity i don't know if capitalizing is the right word but i with it doing something good with it right your circumstance could be very different you could be 24 sure and right exactly and it and so one of the things that is very compelling about your story and about headstrong story is your picking up of the torch of a lot of the things that you found from nicholas's uh, experiences and your experiences as a family, could you talk a little bit on how much of an influence is that in the work that you do? Is it something that keeps you going? Sure. A hundred percent. You know, as, as I had mentioned, uh, my brother's desire to um, create this foundation was rooted in his guilt that something that was happening to him was having such a devastating toll on the people that he cared most about in the world, right? And in addition to that, um, during a 60-day post-bone marrow transplant quarantine, he created this resource. And when he was discharged, he had found his purpose. He wanted to use his platform. He wanted to use his voice and his experience for the betterment of others. And interestingly enough, as I look back on that time, you know, our family was really enmeshed and, and we were very much um, in, in, on the same page, you know, because we, we had all bought in. We were vested in his care. And as almost like, in my opinion, when I look back on things, um, his ability to create this organization, in addition to serving the needs of others, was very much rooted in him giving our family the beautiful gift of providing us with a mechanism to move forward through life in his absence. 
Mm. In many a ways, when he was processing his mortality at just 19 years old, I believe in my heart that he knew that the loss of him, because he was the patriarch of our family, he was everyone's best friend. He was the common denominator. That I think that as he started to think about a world without him in it, how would our family move forward through life? And, you know, at the end of the day, when things didn't go according to plan and Nicholas was on hospice, hospice, by the way, that we had to administer, which is probably one of the hardest things of our lives to do because of a shortcoming in healthcare. Sure. You can only imagine what that was like for our family to be able to be administering hospice drugs to our, to our ailing brother in his last moments. Um, but he wanted our family to continue with this organization so that others would benefit not only from his life, but that we could take this turmoil, which represented a very small portion of our life as a family, and to use it and to make good of it. And um, so for you to ask the question of like, using this experience, you know, um, and how it fosters his fuel, it's at the heart of every single thing that we do. It's at the root of everything that we do. For many of, for many of reasons, this organization is as personally fulfilling as it is professionally. Um, it's one that allows me to personally stay connected to my lost loved one. It allows me to see his impact and vision through the eyes of people living that reality today. It enables us to share his legacy it fills a place in our hearts. It continues to enable us to channel grief in a constructive way. You know, we talk loss and, you know, loss has the ability to keep and hold people down. Negativity um, is something that manifests and you have to be able to, to, to channel it in a way. Otherwise, you know, it'll take over your life. Sure. One thing yeah. for us is, is that we try to be a constant positive. As bad as things get in life, it's not as bad as that. And what I, what I use as a baseline, if you will, is the foundation of our organization is the worst situation you could possibly be dealt. And every day that you're here, every day that you're breathing, every day that you're able to make a difference, no matter how bad of a day you may have, it's never as bad as that situation. And so we know what hard is. We had to say goodbye to our loved one. We had to bury our loved one. We, you know, um, that guilt of not being able to, 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 you know, to assure Nick that everything would be okay. But I will tell you this, in those moments is where we found true strength. In those moments of hardship is where we found our purpose. It's also, when I look back on all of the accomplishments that maybe my brother had in his life, whether it be in life or on an athletic field, I was never more proud than to watch him go through cancer. He was the strongest person I ever met, but more importantly, he instilled in us strength we never knew we had. And in addition to that, he entrusted us with this responsibility of growing an organization with absolutely zero experience in philanthropy, outside of looking to make good on his name and to try and take a problem that we were dealt and try to change the world through it. Do you guys have any um, programs that specifically go after target or seek to help families that are in underserved, marginalized, low-income communities or areas? Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, we're an organization that strives to help everyone. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times. So, you know, we work with about 18 health systems throughout the United States. And many a times, Frankie, the people that we are dealt and speaking with and working with hands-on, whether it be through providing relief funds, whether it be providing a fighter fund, or whether it's just issuing financial assistance, you know, a lot of those folks are impoverished in addition to now navigating cancer. Right. You know, a lot of times maybe they can't afford the littlest things like a doctor's copay. Um, you know, we try to intervene the best way we know how. Um, and, and, and so to your point, you know, we play our position, um, you know, and, and that's something we do take a, a great deal of pride in, 
Uh, because here's what we've come to learn, Frankie, that cancer is an equalizer. It doesn't care where you're from. It doesn't care what income level you are. It doesn't care. You know, I've had the privilege of holding the hands of families of some of the most wealthiest people in our country. And on the flip side, we've had the privilege of holding the hands of people that quite frankly couldn't rub two cents together. And it's all the same. I tell people all the time, if people had the chance to see what we saw on a daily basis, because what we bear witness to is unconditional love and the fragility of life and the length of families and what they'll go through and go to for one another. And I tell people all the time, there would be absolutely no hate in the world when you see people that are dealt these hands. And we're just blessed and privileged to be able to play a hand, you know, to lend a hand in many respects. You do, you do process it in a very, in a very beautiful way. Right. Um, and, and maybe it comes from, I mean, your own personal loss, but also seeing people go through it because it is, it's uh, what you were saying about channeling grief into productive ways i've never really heard it articulated like that but it is something that um like i said i've always hoped to do likewise is it something that um is it something that you you learned through counseling yourself is it something that you've learned through the for lack of better words the repetitions that you know how does it not become emotionally taxing and how are you able to maintain that positive um, outlook on the work that you're doing, which I, I agree and, and totally understand. But sometimes when you're in the weeds of it, it, it can seem a little darker than the way you're describing it. Sure. I mean, let's face it. At the end of the day, you know, being able to have a real conversation and that relatability factor, right? You know, knowing what it's like to walk in the shoes. A lot of times when somebody's dealt a hand, uh, there's no better uh, person to, to console them than somebody that's A, a neutral party, and B, someone who really understands. And I think that carries over to all walks of life and situations. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, our approach tries to, tries to be that constant that someone has the ability to turn to. And because at the end of the day, you know, nothing is gained by being negative. Sure. You know, in my, my position as um, a co-founder of Headstrong, as someone that has to put on the social work hat, somebody that has to put on the marketing hat, somebody that has to wear lots of these different hats is all rooted in uplifting people. And that's my position. You know, I play it to the best of my ability. Um, you know, again, I think a lot of that has to do with our upbringing and understanding too that like the situation that folks are dealing with, yes, it's scary. Yes, we're talking many a times a life and death circumstance. Um, but we try to just approach it with a great deal of empathy and humility and, and just, you know, humanity. Um, I think that's really important for people. You know, we talked about it all the time about just like the importance of laughter and what that does for people. I mean, what you come to realize is that most people that are navigating this situation feel absolutely alone in the world. And just to give time and just to give insight and sometimes it's even letting them blow a gasket. Sometimes it's just letting them vent. You know, being able to be that buffer for them, it doesn't necessarily deny them of their feelings at all. But what it does is it enables them to process them and to move forward. And, and at the end of the day, that's what we've spent the past 15 years doing. Um, you know, again, I'll give you a prime example, and it ties into an impact story of something recently that we're working on. Over the weekend, I had received a phone call from a concerned caregiver and husband who for the past eight months has been providing around-the-clock care to his wife 
who is battling small cell carcinoma of the ovary. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> unfortunately, given the rarity, or I should say the extreme rarity of her diagnosis um, and challenges with several appointments being canceled and delayed due to COVID-19, she was diagnosed in an advanced state with an extremely rare cancer. And she had an, uh, an ovary, uh, a mass on her ovary, which grew to 15 centimeters. Wow. And when it was found, sadly, and diagnosed, they come to find out that given the rarity of this classification of disease is that it had been seen in adolescent females. Now she's in her late thirties, a mom of two boys. And she was pitted in a situation where she was given two hospitals in the United States that actually knew of the diagnosis. One who had actually treated it. So we're talking, her treatment regimen was a reload came with a relocation from Philadelphia to Cincinnati, Ohio, nine hours away. She was relocated. She was forced to leave her children behind, leave her job behind, find suitable accommodations, in addition to undergoing inpatient treatment and preparation for a stem cell transplant. She's been out there for a year now. Oh, wow. So th that's my point. My point being is like, you know, being able to provide real solutions to families' challenges. We stepped in from the moment of diagnosis. We were able to not only mentor this family up and through to a point where I get a phone call over the weekend and I'm there. I think accessibility is really, really important in this situation. Knowing that, you know, we've made it a life's commitment to to be accessible to people when they need to have conversations, not so much in a nine to five scenario. Um, and, and with that being said, you know, being able to provide that financial aid and that relief so that they can continue to afford suitable accommodations in Cincinnati when they're far away from their family, help them find lodging to, to suit their long, you know, their extended stay needs because there isn't a Nick's house, so to speak, in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. She's being treated at a pediatric cancer center as a 38-year-old mom of two. Just the mental exhaustion and emotional exhaustion of that alone is enough to, to drive you crazy. Absolutely. Um, Unfortunately, and I can't believe that we are at the end of the show. Yeah. Um, but thank you for tying in that impact story. That is amazing. How is she doing? Um, by the way, is she looking she's, good? Yeah, she's continuing to fight. I mean, we're playing our position, taking care of those incurred expense, comfort kits, care packages, keeping the family unit as best intact. And even this week, we've introduced them to the University of Cincinnati Bearcats, where they're doing team Zooms and trying to just nice. keep their morale. Um, you know, but those are the things that, you know, oftentimes uplift families. When Absolutely. They, you know, Absolutely. how can people find you, Pat? How can they find you? You know, what's the website? How can they follow you on social media and how can they get involved? Sure. Uh, people can visit headstrong.org. Um, that's a direct link to our website. They can follow us on social media at Headstrong FND. So head H E A D strong FND is the uh, social handle. Um, you guys are following the nonprofits pod. Go to our last post, and uh, Headstrong is tagged there. If it's a lot, if it might be easier for you to find it that way. Great. Yeah, I'm throwing it in the Twitch as well. Um, uh, yeah, I, Pat, from the bottom of my heart, I mean, it does. It is very inspiring to watch people. Uh, to your words, channel grief in that way and do it in a way that is uplifting. You know, um, a lot of what Frankie and I are trying to do is make an impact while we're making people laugh at the same time. Yeah. And uh, we are honored to be able to be working with you yeah. and do appreciate the time. Um, I yeah. did most of the laughs because Stephen's not very funny. I just <laughs> okay. Well, that's why, that's why we're doing an all-female showcase so they can, so I'm not part of it. So just that was just a we'll just that was I mean 
I, I didn't want to say it. Yeah. Pat and I have been talking sidebar. Yeah, Pat, Pat's yeah. just trying to dance around it. How about we do an all-female showcase? That's a way that you can't be a part <laughs> of it. Steven won't be involved. But again, <laughs> thank you so much, Pat. Thank you, everyone at Headstrong. Thank you guys for watching. I have been Frankie French. And I'm Stephen Campbell. And this is... See that energy's already coming back from Love you guys. We're here every every Tuesday at six thirty. Catch us on Spotify, Apple, all that. Jared from Comedy Club. Follow, like, comment, do all that stuff. Yeah, share the pod. Don't be dumb. Thank you, Pat. All right, bye. Okay. I think we need to start doing like Patreon episodes. <laughs>